Hey, uh, my name is Adam. I uh, am one of the pastors here. Get to open scripture with you today, and I'm excited to be with you. I know it's um, a holiday weekend, and many of us are, are traveling or have other plans, uh, but we get to be in this place together um, and also joined online, and we have this time to open scripture, to declare these words, to sing these truths out loud to each other and to be encouraged. And so I'm, I'm really grateful to be here. Um, if you have your Bible or your Bible app, can you turn to Luke chapter 7? Um, this week and next week, uh, it's, it's, it's somewhat unique content that we're going to be walking through. It's, it's actually really powerful um, stories and, and really powerful um, kind of names that are mentioned. And as, a, as kind of a, a reminder for us, we've been in Luke, I think since the fall, um, kind of taking a slow walk through Luke, and then we're, gonna, we're going to go into the book of Acts. And these are both written by the same person to someone named Theophilus. And the reason that these books were written is to tell someone the story of Jesus. That someone could look at this book, could read it, could, could hear about his interactions, could hear about the words that he said, the miracles that he has done, and to know who he is, that he is powerful, and to know his character, that he is good. That's what the book of Luke is for. And, and, and today, the story, and, and next week, the, the reading that we'll have, it's about the people, people who follow Jesus people who support Jesus. And it's, it's predominantly uh, this week and next week, actually women who are alongside, they're his disciples, and they're people who have access to Jesus. And they're really powerful stories, like the one today that we get to sit with and say, Jesus, we want to know you better. Every time we step away from your word, we want to know you better, to see you with more clarity, who you truly are, your power and your character. And that's the story that we have today does just that. I'm going to pray for us, um, and then we're going to look at these verses uh, that we got to hear a few moments ago. Jesus, thank you for this day. Uh, thank you that, that we get to be here, that we get to um, read your truths and read this powerful and amazing story of your love and generosity and power to forgive being poured out it gives us hope. It gives us confidence. And we thank you. And we love you in your name. Amen. There's something unique, maybe even powerful, about having a meal together, right? Not, not, not just grabbing fast food in the car as we're driving somewhere, but, but taking time to actually stop to plan and to have a meal with someone and to share life with them. Um, we've been doing this a ton the last few days. My, my family, along with a whole bunch of other Mosaic people, a handful of families, are actually camping this weekend. I'm going to go back there after this gathering, and um, it's been fun. I know camping is kind of a mixed review. Some of us love it. Some of us not so much. That's the case with my family. Some of us are very excited. Some of us very much are ready to come home. Uh, but we're camping, and we're with these other families, and camping is a lot of work and planning because you basically do all the things you do at home just in the woods, right? Um, and so one of the things that we've been spending a lot of time planning and getting ready for is our meals together. But they've also been some of our richest times together. We plan, we cook, we get everything prepared, and then we sit down and we take time to eat 
that we take time to share life and to listen to stories. There's something that happens when we share a meal together that, that we're able to connect in a unique way. It forces us to listen to one another, right? If you're eating, you, well, you can't, you shouldn't be talking at the same time. If you talk while you're, eat, you're eating, you will not be invited to very many meals with people. So it forces us to listen and to make room for other people. The story that we're looking at today, the setting is a meal. In fact, it's, it's a banquet. There's many people there and, and they've come because Jesus has been invited by this man, this Pharisee, this teacher of the law to come and to dine with him. And so we pick up in Luke 7, starting in verse 36. And this is the setting of the story. It says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Okay, the scene is set for, for kind of an outrageous story. This dignified person who's, who's curious about Jesus, this Pharisee, this teacher of the law named Simon, has invited Jesus to a meal. Okay, they're not just going to run by Subway and, and, and just get something to eat. This isn't about just eating. It's about communing, taking time to hear Jesus, to hear his teachings, to ask him questions. Come to my house. Let's recline at the table. Other people will be there. The doors to the community will be open. There'll be people walking by. But there is a party crasher who comes, someone who is not wanted, someone who is not invited, who breaks her way into this meal, this time with Simon, his friends, and with Jesus. We have these, these three characters who do outrageous things in this story. We know that there's other people there. They're mentioned later that they, they hear Jesus teaching and they're, they're confused. But, but really, this, this story hinges on these three people and these outrageous things that they do. The first one is Simon, the Pharisee who invites Jesus into his home to share a meal together, but in an outrageous way is very rude to Jesus, right? This is an honor society. The, the, the setting, the culture is an honor society. And so when Jesus comes to this man's home, he is Simon's guest. And there's certain ways that guests are to be treated with honor. One of those ways is his feet would have been washed, right? That's that's not really something that we engage in and I'm kind of grateful for. If you come to my house for a meal, I'm not going to wash your feet. Right? We, we, we don't do that so much. But, but in this setting, people walk or they rode everywhere on dusty paths. And their feet were obviously, commonly, pretty dirty. And the way that they would eat is not at a table with chairs like you and I, but at a very low sitting table where they actually lay down. And so their bodies are, are somewhat parallel. So the, the, the foot to food distance is not that much. And so it's important to have clean feet. So as the host, he should have cleaned Jesus's feet and he should have greeted him warmly with a kiss, a kiss on the cheek. This was the culture. This was to show you are welcome here. You are safe here. You are being hosted by me as my honored guest, I'm going to greet you with a holy kiss. And he should have been anointed with olive oil. These are the normal things in this society you would do if you invited someone as your guest to your home for a meal. And it's outrageous because Simon does none of these things. The second person 
and her outrageous actions is the woman. The woman who, who Luke says live a sinful life, who the Pharisee Simon calls a sinner. Most scholars and, and, and people who, who study the context that scripture is written, written in says she was likely a prostitute, someone who had sold her body to provide for herself. This woman does this outrageous thing. She shows up to a party, to a meal, to a banquet that she is not wanted at, that she is not invited to, and she goes to the feet of Jesus and she begins to cry. Verse 38 says, as she, this woman, stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. The, the, the phrase that describes her weeping is actually a phrase that would have been used to describe weather, like it's pouring, a deluge. She's pouring out tears on the feet of Jesus and begins to wash his dusty, grimy feet with her hair. This thing in their culture that represented her honor, she's using to clean Jesus's dirty feet. And then she takes perfume. And we can imagine because of her profession, she does not have a lot of discretionary money. And it's a sacrifice that she pours this perfume on his feet. And the room would have been dead silent. You could hear a pin drop. What is happening? She is not supposed to be in here. Why is she walking up to Jesus? Why is she weeping? She's taking down her hair. What is she doing? This is, this is outrageous. Then the third character is Jesus. And the outrageous thing that he says to this woman. He doesn't kick her away. He doesn't say, get away from me. He doesn't say I'm engaged in this banquet, in this dinner with other people. No, he recognizes her faith, her dependence on him. And he says this outrageous thing, your sins, your many sins are forgiven. What a beautiful story this is. This interruption at a party. What's funny is many of Jesus's interactions and miracles and brilliant things that he does happen because he's interrupted. He's going from one place to the next, or he's sitting down at a meal and someone interrupts him, and, and we're given this beautiful picture. Now, we know that, that Simon, who's invited Jesus to come into his home, that he's intrigued by Jesus, right? He, he's at least curious to hear from him or else he wouldn't have invited him. If he saw him as antagonistic, he wouldn't have reclined at a table with him. He's, he's at least curious, but when this outrageous moment happens with the woman, it signifies to him that this actually isn't a prophet. This isn't a man of God. It says this in, in, in verse 39, when the Pharisee, Simon, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Simon had a very specific idea of who Jesus, the Messiah, should be and would be. What he would look like, what he would say, how he would engage with society. He had a very specific idea and something that he was looking for in the Messiah and that distracted him. It blinded him. 
Mark Moore, in his book, The Chronological Life of Christ, says it this way. Based on his own presuppositions, the Pharisee Simon assumes that the Messiah would not let a prostitute touch him, but this is where he is mistaken. He has an idea, a preconceived notion of who Jesus is and who he would be in relationship with, who he would let near him. And it's this very thing, his own cultural preference, that is blinding him to Jesus. His cultural preferences. You and I have our own cultural preferences, right? Ways that we make sense of the world around us ways that we find how we fit into the world and where we fit into the world and what we think would benefit and be good and ideal and, a, and, and better for the world and what we think is hurting the world. And, and we all have that. We have these cultural preferences and things that make sense to us. And it is likely that our own cultural preferences at times become the blind spot in which we miss what Jesus is doing around us and in us. Because in this moment, this Pharisee thought, oh, the Messiah would never let this woman, this prostitute, come near to him. And yet Jesus receives her. He has come with curiosity, but he is detached. She has come with absolute humility. She has come with adoration and sacrifice. She has come with gratitude and worship. And do you know what she is? Do you know what she is for this Pharisee who's the teacher of the law, who's the expert, who knows all of the, the, the prophecies, who can, who can cite you all these things, who's had all of the education? Do you know what she is for him? And do you know what she is for you and I? She's a teacher. She's teaching us and she's teaching Simon how to come to Jesus, how to be broken, how to have a life wrecked because of decisions and sin and come to Jesus. And it was interesting when I was, I was reading this and thinking about this, all the things that Jesus models for us, he, he's baptized and, and, and he teaches how to pray. He does all of these things. But, but one thing that, that he can't actually model for us is how, how to come to God with our sin, right? Why? Be, because we read in scripture, Jesus lived a blameless, perfect life. And so God has orchestrated this moment and has called this woman in her desperation, in her humility, to be the teacher, to show Simon in a loving way, this is how you come before the Savior. This is what the Messiah looked like. And it's so much better than what you thought, Simon, because what you thought, Simon, is that he would be the just best version of you, the perfect version of you, but he's so much better because he's for everyone. He brings grace and mercy to everyone. She's the teacher. To great risk of herself, as this banquet is happening and she hears that Jesus is at the place and and she wants to go and she wants to be with Jesus, she knows there is great risk. There are servants there that that as she goes to the door and approaches Jesus, if Jesus did not welcome and receive her, they would have certainly seized her and they would have thrown her out. There's external risk and there's also internal risk on her part. Can you imagine? They're in this village. Everyone knows who she is. Everyone knows what she does. 
Luke says that she's a, a woman who's lived a sinful life, but the Pharisee calls her a sinner as her identity. This internal risk and conflict of, of shame. To not stay outside of the banquet with this sense of shame. There was uh, a teacher um, who used to be on the Mosaic team before he died named Paul Rhodes. He also mentored um, many of us, and he taught and mentored a lot about this idea of shame. And he would distinguish it from guilt. Guilt is regret for something that I've done, right? I, I said that thing, I did this thing, I made this purchase, and I shouldn't have done it, and, and I feel regret for an action that I've done. But shame, shame is regret for who you are. Shame happens when we internalize the sin and mistakes that we've made in our lives and we say, this is who we are. And for Simon, that is who she was. And she would have been known that as a sinner. And if she went near Simon and as she goes near Jesus, she's actually making them culturally unclean by being in their presence and by touching them. And she knows this. She overcomes shame to be with Jesus. Or think about maybe just hopelessness as an obstacle for her. Her whole life has led to this moment. It has not been good. It has been so challenging. Is there something better? Is there something good? Can God be trusted? Can this Messiah, this person named Jesus, who teaches with authority, who heals, who raises the dead, does he have something for me? She overcomes hopelessness. She abandons self-reliance. She has a life of caring for herself, even to her own peril. She's probably learned in life that she is the only one she can trust, that she is the only one who's cared about her well-being, and that others, particularly men, are unsafe and have probably treated her very poorly and have probably treated her painfully. No, 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 self-reliance. I, I have to take care of myself. I can't put myself in this compromised position by walking into this banquet full of people who do not want me there. But she's desperate. She's desperate. And with humility and worship and adoration, she crashes Simon's party. She goes to the feet of the one who she's put her hope in, and she washes his feet with her tears and pours expensive perfume. I love that she's teaching me this. I love that she's showing us there's nothing, nothing that separates us from the open hand and grace of our Savior. That we can come, even if it's offensive or uncomfortable for us or others around, she's teaching us we can come to him. He's willing and he's able. Now as this, this scene is happening, Simon is thinking to himself. He doesn't say anything, but we know Jesus can perceive and hear thoughts because it's come up over and over throughout Luke. He's thinking to himself, oh, this, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He's not from here, so he wouldn't know this woman's reputation. But if he was a real prophet, he would sense her wickedness and her unrighteousness, and he would never allow her to touch him. And Jesus responds to him in verse 40 and says, Jesus answered him, even though Simon didn't actually ask anything. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. 
Tell me, teacher. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and another 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them would love him more? He begins this simple story, this analogy, that, that's going to help Simon have some reference for what's happening in this room at his dinner. And he begins by talking about debt and, 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 and money. A denarii is, is one day wages. So 500 one day wages, it's roughly a year and a half salary, and, or, or 50 one day wages, uh, the, these amounts of money. And he's saying neither one of them could pay them back. Okay, so, so someone who has sinned greatly, sin being this, this choosing outside the nature of God, whether that's for our provision, for our entertainment, for what we need, for our consumption, anything we choose outside of the nature of God is, is sin. And we know Romans 3, 20, uh, 23 says, uh, for all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. So this is a common human condition. All of us have chosen outside of the nature of God this thing called sin. And then Romans 6, 23 says, because of this, we, we are actually subject to death. We have this debt that we cannot pay. Whether we owe 50 days wages or 500 days wages, it's the same because we cannot pay it. But he asked Simon, if both of these debts were canceled, who would rejoice and respond more? Simon, I think it, in my mind it's a little bit begrudgingly. Well, I suppose, I suppose the one with 500. Of course, the one with 500, right? If, if after this, you and I, we go down and we get some hot wings, which it's my jam, and at the end of the meal, you look across the table and say, Adam, I got you. I want to buy your wings. I'm going to be pretty happy. I'm going to give you a high five. I'll give you a hug if you're a hugger. That's, that's awesome. But if tomorrow I got a call from my mortgage company, said, Adam, you've paid enough for that house. You know what? It's good. We're going to call it even. We're going to cancel the rest of your debt. My response would be a little different. I'd be freaking out. That's a massive debt that's been canceled, that's been lifted off of me. All of the implications, it would be amazing. That's the story Jesus is telling Simon. Don't you get it? Celebrate with her. She's had this massive debt weighing on her, giving her an identity, and, and I'm going to set her free of that. So she loves much. He responds, You have answered correctly, Jesus says. And in 44, it says, then he turned towards the woman. And I, I love, I can see this scene so clearly. He's speaking to Simon, but he looks at this woman who hasn't stopped crying at his feet, washing his feet, pouring perfume. He looks at this woman and says to Simon, do you see this woman? I've come into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and has wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, and her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this uh, who even forgives, uh, forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
What an amazing scene. This woman who God has ordained as the teacher to demonstrate this is what it's like to come to the feet of Jesus. Hey guys, look at my life. He'll take anyone. Guys, look at my, my reputation and my identity. He's not intimidated by that. He can make new. He can make whole. He can heal. He can reconcile. Years ago, when I, I first went off to college in, in Las Vegas, in my first two years of college, I served at a, a nonprofit organization called uh, the Dream Center. And we had uh, purchased a large chunk of a very old casino called the Moulin Rouge. It's at the very north end of the Las Vegas Strip. And if, if you've never been to the Strip, what you see on pictures and in movies, it's a seven-mile strip where kind of all the casinos are, right? It's lots of lights. It's a Statue of Liberty. It's wild. But, but at the north end of the Strip is all of these run-down uh, hotels and casinos. And it's, it's where the people who just get chewed up and eaten alive in this city end up. You know, the, the, the city, it, it has a very hard reality for so many people. And, and we had this organization, and we are ser serving houseless people. We are serving people who were uh, trying to clean up their lives, who were in transition. And uh, we, they would live there, and collectively, they would serve this organization. And as we were doing this, we were also planting a church with these people. And my role was to help build a, a worship band, a music team, like what we have that, that leads us every Sunday. And so we began, and I began trying to find the artists and the singers and this woman. Uh, she had been part of the program for several years and had had an amazingly difficult, brutal, hard life. She had children, um, but had no support from their father, uh, had no support from her family, had been on the streets and just lived a difficult life and had found Jesus has found wholeness and was part of this program. And, and she said, hey, Adam, I, I want to sing. And, and actually, I know some songs from when I was a kid at church. And she began to sing. And it was, it was beautiful. It was just amazing. Her, her voice was so pure. And it was so awesome. And so I was like, great, you're on the band. And, and she began to, to lead worship. And we would lead together. And she would sing this old course, this old gospel song called My Jesus. It's a very personal song about Jesus seeing her and loving her and her coming to him. And she would sing and just weep. And I remember at the time I was probably 19 and, and I had an idea of what relationship with Jesus was like. But she taught me something more. She taught me the personal understanding of a Jesus who meets me in my lowest and broken point. And there was a richness and an intimacy to her song and to her worship. And it was a signpost to me of who Jesus is. That he's big. He's bigger than my brokenness and your brokenness. That he's welcoming. That he loves us. That he can make us new. I want to invite our, our team to come forward. They're going to lead us in a song here in just a moment. This woman, she's faithfully come to the feet of Jesus, overcoming these obstacles in the face of great peril and great risk. And she goes from Jesus' feet, forgiven and healed. Can you imagine what that looks like for her community? That she now is a living, walking, talking signpost 
of just how good this Jesus is. He tells her, the last thing he says is go in peace. Let's go in peace. And this, this phrase isn't talking about go live a life absent of turmoil. This, this phrase, this term peace, actually means live the life of salvation. Live in harmony with God. You've been forgiven. You've been made new. Now don't return to your old life. Live a life. Walk the steps of a saved life in harmony with who God is. I love this story. I love how it challenges us, and I love what it invites us into. As we're getting ready to sing, I, I want to leave you uh, with, with a bit of a, a challenge. Week after week, we, we zoom into scripture and we look at these stories, and, and oftentimes we, we kind of just go back to life, right? It's probably a busy weekend for many of us. Uh, some of us have the day off tomorrow. We'll be in barbecues. We'll be uh, with friends or family. And, and, and life's busyness is waiting for us right outside the door or right when we close the computer. I want to invite you to actually slow down and to fully immerse yourself into this story, to learn from this outrageous thing that happened Ask yourself, where do I need to come to the feet of Jesus for healing and forgiveness? What have I been holding on to that I'm not meant to carry? What have I been holding on to that Jesus is waiting for me to come with repentance and lay it at his feet? Ask myself, what am I learning from Simon? Who through his cultural uh, perspective and his preferences is missing what Jesus is doing in the world. Where have I placed up idols that distort my vision of Jesus that I need to lay down? And to sit with this story and to respond to the Jesus that this story is actually all about. Father, thank you for your word that it's truth and powerful. Thank you for this day that you've created. I pray as we, we go about our, our time, as we sing one more song, and then go into our day, into our weekend, and into our week, that this story, the power of your Holy Spirit, would speak to us. God, the, the, the power in this story, what it reveals about your character, that it would reverberate in our hearts, in our minds, over and over. Enlarging creating a grander view of who you are in our minds, spurring our faith, spurring us to come to your feet like this woman. We thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Hey, let's stand to our feet. Let's sing this song together.